One of the hardest things about this season that we are in the middle of is expectations. We all have them, and they're hard to get away from. And they can become like a giant weight on our backs. The expectations of what we're going to get, the expectations of what we're going to give, the expectations of what we're going to experience, the expectations of what we're going to try to make up for that didn't happen in the past. The expectations of what this moment has to mean because of what's ahead in the future. And these expectations can become like this weight weighing us down. And for many of us, the the biggest barrier to us experiencing wonder and the spirit of Christmas is the expectations. There are others of us, though, that have gone the entirely opposite direction. We have thrown our expectations in the trash. We've given up on them. We said, hey, if I have no expectations, never be disappointed. You know, it just, it is what it is. I gave up on those a long time ago. And when we punt expectations, the challenge is, is that we never really step into that wonder. We never really step into the experience that even though we say we don't want it, deep down we still do. And one of the places that I experience, and maybe you're like me, the the most expectations is around this whole presence thing. Who to buy for, what to get, and then what I'm going to get. And one of my favorite Christmas movies illustrates the tension of expectations really, really well. And I brought a clip for you today. (laughs) And when you feel the expectations just escaping your fingers. Some of you who are in the room under 25 are wondering why he didn't just go on Amazon.com. And that was because back in the dark ages of the internet in 1996, we had to buy these uh, or get these free AOL CDs to get more hours to go online, to buy more things, and just be grateful that you weren't born in the dark ages like we were there. But, But Arnold's experience in buying this toy is about so much more than a toy. You see, if you know this movie, you know that throughout the beginning of the movie, Arnold's a terrible dad. He's not present, he's not engaged, and he has to buy this toy because the toy is going to be the sign of him becoming the kind of dad he wants to be. And Sinbad, who's in there, uh, the male guy, when he was a child, he wanted a toy, like Turbo Man. And his dad failed to deliver. And so getting that toy for his son, is about so much more than a toy. And if you're like me, when you sense your expectations slipping through your fingers, the temptation is to double down, to try even harder to make it happen. Illustrate that kind of like this. We tend to grab the steering wheel even tighter. We, we reach for control even more. We, we try to make the thing happen that is slipping away. And I had that experience multiple times this year because this year for me did not go like I thought it was going to on December 23rd, 2017. I got an alert this morning from Twitter who asked me to sum up my year in an emoji. I paused for a second and I said, what emoji would I pick? And I picked that emoji with those eyes that are bugged out, you know, where the pupil's really small and the whites is really big. Because there are so many things that happened to me this year. I was like, are you serious? Really? Like, I didn't know what else to do. Like, there were no words, just big, bugged eyes. 
And in those moments that I didn't plan for, in those moments that I didn't expect, I reached for control because I felt scared. Here's the thing. Even if you say you're not a control freak, you reach for control when you feel vulnerable. The temptation to control is strongest when we feel vulnerable and scared and afraid because we want to restore order to our world. And during the next few days, you may have a moment or maybe you're already living in a moment where you feel vulnerable. You feel exposed. You feel scared. Maybe this wasn't what you were planning on doing. This wasn't where you were planning on being. This wasn't what you were planning on experiencing. And so what do you do in that moment? Do you reach for control? Or do you lean into that fear and meet God there? An epiphany hit me in the middle of this experience that I've had that I want to share with you this morning. And it crystallized into an idea this week that's our big idea for this message. And it's this, that control is the enemy of wonder, but trust is the path to wonder. Control is the enemy of wonder, but trust is the path to wonder. We've been in this series for four weeks now. This is our final week talking about how do we awaken wonder. And one of the things that I want you to know today is the greatest threat to wonder in your life is control. And if you have to be in control, you will never step into wonder. This morning, we're going to dive into the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke is the third of four accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Luke is the third one. So if you have a physical Bible, open it to the middle, head towards the back. You'll pass Matthew, Mark, and you'll get into Luke. And we're going to look at the experiences today of two individuals who had an encounter with a messenger from God, an angel. And we're going to explore their reactions to that. In Luke chapter 1 verse 5, this is what we read. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, Zechariah and Elizabeth, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He was a priest. And he was in the, the temple delivering an offering to God at the altar of incense. And while he's in there, a priest, uh, an angel shows up. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, the angel, and fear fell upon Zechariah. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. This is the child who would go on to become John the Baptist. And then in Luke 1.14, he says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Later, Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, Zechariah, you will be silent 
and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Angel comes, delivers a message. Zechariah asks a question and the angel says, you're not going to talk for nine months until this baby is delivered. That's Zechariah's experience. Then a few verses later, Gabriel, who's very busy, by the way, in the first few chapters of you know, Luke 1 and 2. I mean, he goes to Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds. I mean, he's all over the place. But in Luke 1, 26, we read about Mary. And it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, who was in the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to Mary and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he'll be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Another question. But watch what comes next. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, if, if you were paying attention there, you notice something. Mary replied to the angel. She could talk. Zachariah. Nothing. And I know the temptation for some of you, because you read the Bible before, is just to read the Bible blamelessly. Sorry, mindlessly aimlessly. You just kind of go, yeah, 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 yeah. You kind of just read it, but you should ask the Bible questions. When you read it, you should read it actively. And if you're paying attention, a question should be in your mind right now. And that question is this, why was Zachariah made mute when Mary was not? Have you ever wondered this? Like, seriously, did, did he like Zachariah more than, you know, Zachariah less than Mary? You know, was he sexist? You know, like, what's the deal here? Was, was uh, Mary a better person than Zachariah? Did she, you know, love God more? Was she from a better family? Has she done something to merit not getting made mute? Because Zachariah asked the question, and the angel says, you're not going to talk for nine months. And Mary asks the question, and she talks right away. What's the deal? Well, today I want to share with you the deal. And it is three lessons about control and wonder. And I encourage you to take notes if you have your hand out from your bulletin you got when you walked in. Here's the first lesson. The questions we ask God reveal our posture towards God. Have you ever thought about this? That the questions we ask God, the questions we pose to God, they actually reveal our posture towards God. Internally. In Luke 1.18, we see Zachariah's question. And his question is this, how shall I know this? His question is a question about proof. Give me some proof. Give me some sign. Give me some reason to believe that though we've been barren for decades and we're old, we're going to have a baby. How shall I know this to be true? That's his question. When he says, you're going to 
Here's, you're going to have a baby. He says, for I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. How shall I know this to be true? But in Luke 134, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? She's not saying, how do I know you're telling me the truth? She's saying, how will this happen? Because I got the birds and the bees a while back. I don't remember this part of the story. How will this be? It's a very different question. How will I know this versus how will this be? One's a question of, can you do it? The other question is, how will you do it? And what's interesting is while the virgin birth was unprecedented, a birth for an old couple was not. And as a priest, Zachariah should have known this. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 15, a man named Abraham hears from God that he will be the father of many nations, even though he is well advanced in years and is childless. And it says in that day that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, it was an unprecedented thing for someone who's a virgin to have a child, but it was not an unprecedented thing for an older couple to have a child. And when Zechariah, knowing this, says, how can I know you're telling me the truth? The posture of his heart is revealed. The lack of faith is revealed. And here's what I've learned. That when God tells us of his plans to do the impossible, we often respond with fear. You ever had a moment where you had a sense of what God was doing and you were terrified? Like, no, 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 no. I'm not ready for that guy. <laughs> Maybe you got this wrong person here. I'm not the person who can do that. I don't know what you're thinking, God, but I can't do that. Uh, I don't know what your plans are, God. I don't know what you see in me, but I don't see that in me. Let me respond with fear. See, whether it's a virgin birth or a birth to a couple who was advanced in years, both of those things seemed impossible to the person who received the news. And when you get a sense that God wants you to do something impossible, I can tell you what happens in your heart, because it happens in mine too. The impossible, it stretches our comfort zone. You know that bubble we like to stay in where we know and can predict life? The impossible makes us uncomfortable. The impossible causes us to dip into our reserves and give or trust or do more than ever before. The impossible moves us towards courage. The impossible upsets the status quo and the impossible shifts us from memory to imagination. Some of us, we live by memory. How do I know this? You don't remember driving here this morning. You just all of a sudden were here, you know? You got your car, and all of a sudden you were here. You don't remember the four left turns or the two highway changes or the stoplights? Because you've driven here before. And here's the problem. For some of us, we're not driving by memory. We're living by it. For some of us, we are in such a safe place with our lives and in so much control that our lives do not require us to mentally check in. It's one thing to drive by remote control. It's another thing to live that way. And when this impossible message comes to Zechariah, it produces fear because he recognizes he's going to have to leave behind the safe, predictable, in-control life for a new one. And what we see in this passage is that Zechariah's question reveals his fear and Mary's question reveals her faith. That's one of the reasons why Zechariah is made mute. Mary's not. God says, I'm going to do this impossible thing. And Zechariah goes, I don't believe you. Mary says, I do believe you. I'm just not really sure how that's going to happen. 
The questions we ask reveal the posture of our heart. This is why, even if you're not a journaler, I'd encourage you from time to time to write down your prayers. Because as you write them down, you can get kind of perspective on them. Or ask someone who you're around, who you pray with, hey, what do my prayers sound like? Because sometimes we're saying things out loud that our brain isn't catching up on. We've been talking about things, and yet we haven't put two and two together. And so sometimes you need people to reflect back to us or read our own writing to go, man, I feel like my prayer life is actually my control life. It's me trying to control, manipulate God. And sometimes it takes writing that down or saying, hey, you hear me pray. What, What does it sound like? For us to reveal the posture of our heart. The questions we ask God reveal the posture of our heart. Number two, God sees the motives in a person's heart. God sees the motives in a person's heart. In this moment between Zechariah and Mary, God is not looking merely at their words. He's looking through their words to their heart. And what he sees is the difference between control and wonder. The control in Zechariah and the wonder in Mary. In the Old Testament, one of the first verses I remember being told as a child was from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, about the choosing of King David. And and God said to the, the priest, Samuel, he said, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we live in a time, and this is a season that can be a very superficial season. Right? Man, they're having a great Christmas. Why? Because the tree is decorated. and There's lots of presents under the tree. And look at Christmas morning and there's a Lexus with a red bow on it. You know, they're having a great Christmas. I've never seen a Lexus with a red bow on it in real life, by the way. Like, it's just, like, that's not real. That's my cynical side coming out. So, so the truth is that while we often see the surface, God sees the motives. God sees the heart. God sees what's really going on inside someone. And that's why he sees into Zechariah the fear and the control and the doubt. And that's why he makes him mute. He sees inside of Mary and he sees the wonder and the faith. She doesn't understand everything that God's doing. I mean, she says, hey, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. I think I know how this works. And I was, I don't remember that moment. You know, I think I would. And so she questions that. And God sees the motives in the heart. And here's, I think, where where this comes home for you. Maybe if you're wondering what this has to do with you. Here's, Here's the truth. That you can love God, or you can try to control God, but you can't do both. You can love God, or you can try to. And notice I added try to there. Because you can't control God. But you can sure try. But you can't do both. And for many of us, if you're like me, in that moment where you feel afraid or overwhelmed or confused, the temptation is to try to control God or to try to control life instead of loving God. And the same thing that's true about our relationship with God is true about our relationship with people. Donna Miller says it this way. He says, you can't have a true, intimate relationship with people you control. Control is about fear And intimacy is about risk. None of the people in your life that you're friends with or family with want you to control them. I promise you, 100%. Take it to the bank. 
No one in the morning wakes up and goes, man, I want to be controlled today. But each and every one of us wakes up in the morning and we say, I want to be loved. And control is about fear. And intimacy is about risk. That's why it's so scary. And that's why so many of us default to control. Because it's safer and it's easier and it's more comfortable. Loving someone and being loved is far more risky and far more uncomfortable. And this is the story of Zachariah and Mary. Will I follow God? Will I love him? Will I trust him? Or will I merely control him? It's easier to control God than it is to trust him. It's easier to try to control God. To tell God, this is what I'll do. This is what I won't do. This is where I'll go. This is where I won't go. This is what I'll say yes to. This is what I'll say no to. Than it is to lay your life down and say, I trust you. In, in Luke 9, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, whoever would lose their life for my sake will find it. But whoever holds on to it will lose it. He says, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to lay things behind. You're going to have to give up control. And this is why Christmas is hardest for cynics. If you're a cynic in the room, Christmas is hard for you. Because cynicism is maintained through the loss of wonder and the absence of curiosity. Cynicism is like putting an army in front of your heart and saying, I'm never going to be hurt again. But here's the thing. You'll never be loved and you'll never experience wonder. Because wonder is curious about mystery and control looks to eliminate mystery. The, the Christmas story is so filled with mystery. Why Mary? Why Joseph? A virgin birth? How does that happen? Why, why this moment? Why that moment? In a, the backside of nowhere, none of us would have chosen for this to be the entrance of God into the world. And the beauty of Christmas is that it's filled with wonder. And if you're a person who's, who's experiencing this season, the awakening of wonder in your heart, what you're experiencing is the acceptance and the pursuit of mystery. But if you're a person who likes to be in control, you hate mystery. Because mystery means your plans to get frustrated. Mystery means that things that you thought could work out might God, he sees those things going on in your heart and mine. And that's what he wants to deal with this Christmas. The third lesson from this story is that the test of our trust is our obedience. The test of our trust in God is not what we say, it's in our obedience. Those final words of Mary are so profound after she hears this message that she's going to be bearing God's son she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She says, hey, I'll go with you. I'll follow you. I'll step into that. I'll, I'll step and follow you. I'll obey you. And what's so interesting is that even though in the beginning, Zechariah asked the wrong question, he actually does obey in the end. When, when the child is born, it says in Luke 159, that on the eighth day, 
they came to circumcise the child. This is Zachariah's child, John. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. This was an era and a day where no one made up names like today. I mean, make up names, you know, today that are brand new and have never been heard before, you know, like North and West and East and South. (laughs) They didn't do those names back then. And they made signs to his father and they were inquiring what he wanted him to be called his son. And he asked for a writing tablet, remember, because he can't speak. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God and a fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. Obedience doesn't require our understanding, but it does require our trust. Why do you want to name my son John? How am I going to have a son? I'm not capable of having a baby. What do you mean I'm going to have a baby? I've never actually had sex before. I know how this works. If you're going to follow God and obey him, and you require that you understand what God is doing, you won't obey God. Because that isn't part of the bargain. God doesn't say, hey, follow me. And by the way, here's the entire plan. I'm laying it out for you. So you totally totally get it. If that's how it works for you, you are the one exception in 7 billion people. No, obedience doesn't require understanding. It requires trust. And if you don't trust God, you won't obey him. Because he will lead you into places you don't understand, that don't make sense. In that moment, let me go back here. In that moment, if you don't trust God and you're unwilling to obey him, then what you might do is you might make excuses. You might say, God, I know that's what you want me to do, but I don't understand it, so I'm going to keep praying about it. God, I know you want me to do this, but I don't understand it, so I'm going to read the Bible about it. God, I know you want me to do this, but I'm going to go get some godly counsel. And in all of those places, when you know what God has called you to do, even prayer, even reading the Bible, even seeking godly counsel can be a sin. Even prayer can become an excuse or a substitute for obedience. Hear me clearly. I'm not saying that prayer is a sin. I'm not saying reading the Bible is a sin. I'm not saying that seeking godly counsel is a sin. But if you know what God has called you to do, and you're putting it off, biblically speaking, all delayed obedience is disobedience. And you can be like Jonah and run the other way. Or you can be like today and you can pray about it. But in that moment, praying about it can be a way to sin. Can be a way to delay obedience. Can be a way to say, God, I'm going to try to control you. Mary wanted to understand. And God wanted her to trust. And the path to wonder is trust. Here's a question that I've kind of come to at the end of this series, the end of my own journey with wonder. And it's a question I want to pose to you. Is it possible 
that we've lost our wonder about who Jesus is and what he's done because we've cared more about understanding it than having a sense of wonder about it. Is it possible that our struggle with wonder is not because we lack faith, it's because we care more about understanding what God is doing and having a sense of wonder and awe about it? Because one of the things I've learned, and we covered this in the first week, is that one of the reasons we lack wonder is we know too much. And we treat God as a subject to be studied instead of a person to be worshipped. And what we've said in this series is that it's hard to worship Jesus without wonder. And we've said in this series that Jesus didn't come to be controlled. He came to be worshipped. You will never fully understand what God is doing in your life. And if you wait for understanding, you will never worship him. You will never follow him. You will never step out in obedience to him. Mary didn't understand what he was doing, and yet she said, behold, I'm your servant. May it be to me according to your will. That's a statement of submission, of trust. And if you're waiting to trust God with your life, if you're waiting to trust God with your future, if you're waiting to trust God with this Christmas until you understand him, you're going to be waiting for a long time. And in the meantime, you're going to miss out on so many things. Control is the enemy of wonder. And trust, trust is the path to wonder. I grew up singing a hymn called Trust and Obey. Trust and obey, trust and obey. There is only one way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And if you trust God, you will obey him. Got a couple of reflection questions I want you to think about in your massive free time over the next two days. I sense the sarcasm in my voice. Number one, what is one area where you are struggling to trust God? What is one area where you go, man, I I just struggle with control there. I just, I want to hold on to that. I don't get what God is doing. And I just, I struggle to trust him. What's that one area? Name it. What is that place? Number two, what questions do you need to begin asking God? If they're not questions of control and they're questions of, of wonder or exploration, what questions do you need to begin asking God? Because the questions you ask reveal what's going on inside of your heart. What are some new questions you can begin asking God? And then number three, what is one step of obedience you could take today as an act of trust? You may not know all of your steps, steps 10, 15, 27, but what's the one thing you could do right now? That God has already shown you to do. And what I have found is that God reveals next steps as I take the steps I know to take. You may not know what the future holds, but what is the next thing God is calling you to do? One of my favorite Christmas songs is the song, Oh Holy Night. And there's a line in that song that I love. And it says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And this week I began to wonder, why is our world so weary? What is it that wears us out the most? 
And could it be that we are living in such a weary world that we are such a weary people because we are trying to control what cannot be controlled? Is it possible that you are so weary because you are trying to force an outcome that God is not bringing? And maybe the reason that the world rejoices is that our hope shifts from our control to Jesus and what he's doing. Maybe this Christmas you might rejoice because you leave behind your control and you step into trust and wonder and awe at who God is and what he's doing in your life. Maybe not your plan. Maybe not what you expected. Maybe not even what you wanted. But something that should cause you to step back with awe and wonder. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.